0: The first Bible reading comes from Mark 10:32 to 45, page 105.8. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. "'Teacher,' they said, "'we want you to do for us whatever we ask.' "'What do you want me to do for you?' he asked. They replied, "'Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory.' You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Second reading is from John
1: chapter 15. John chapter 15, beginning at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I have learned from my father I have made known to you. Thanks, Anna and Ruth Uh, do keep your Bible open in fact um, why don't you turn back to Mark chapter 10 um, because we're going to look there and then we'll come to we'll spend most of our time here really uh, and then we'll come to John 15 a little later Um, uh, there's also an outline uh, in the that you would got on the way in hopefully um gives you a bit of an idea of where we're headed tonight. It's even got a little blank to fill in if you like doing those things. Uh, I like doing them sometimes as well. How about I pray for us? Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a good God. Thank you that you speak to us and help us now to sit under your word. I hear this part uh, of the scriptures. uh, Think your thoughts after you as we think about serving and keeping our joy uh, and our identity. And we ask that you would be at work by your spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. I thought we'd start with a bit of a a who am I. I'm not a a huge fan of who am I, I'm not very good at them, Uh, but here we go, let's give it a go. Uh, Who am I? I was born... Can you go... Thank you. Uh, Who am I? I was born in Germany in 1879. Uh, At an early age, I excelled at some subjects at school, uh, maths and physics uh, and so by the age of 12 I de- developed my own original proof of Pythagoras's theorem. At age 15 though I clashed with the authorities at my school and so was prevented from pursuing electrical engineering as my father wished uh, at that school. Uh, I failed the general entrance exam uh, at a Swiss college that year uh, but the following year when I was 16 uh, was admitted uh, scoring the highest grades in physics and maths, I went on to become uh, to be trained as a teacher and a lecturer. A bit of uh, family uh, interaction. I married my uh, first wife at age 24, and we had two sons. Uh, we separated 11 years later. Uh, five years after that, I married my cousin, my first cousin on my mother's side and second cousin on my father's side. We moved to the US uh, in 1933. And my wife died there three days later. Uh three years later, sorry. Uh I developed a revolutionary theory of general relativity uh, that became world famous in 1919. I was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1921, and my most famous formula is you may know it by this stage, E equals M C squared. That's right, I am Albert Einstein. Uh, you might be a bit of a fan of uh, uh, Who Am I's. As I said, I'm not very good at them. But I, but I said a few things there about Einstein, didn't I? Uh, some things that he did, uh, some things that happened to him, uh, his relationships. Uh, they all formed part of his identity, uh, part of who he was, the, the house, if you like, that made up his identity. But what about at the very core? What about at the foundation? Who was he? I'm not really sure about that, but turning that back to us, what about you? What about you? Who are you? And there can be many aspects to who you are, to your identity. We can define ourselves by our actions, by our loves by our skills, by and or by our relationships. But I want to say this evening that if the foundation of the house, which is our identity, which is who we are, if the foundation is in something in ourselves or in something in people around us, then we're almost certain to be disappointed. If we hold on to those shifting ways of finding value, of worth, of finding meaning for ourselves, then we're always going to be standing on shifting sand. No matter how we try, how much we try and shore it up. Instead, on Christ, the solid rock, we need to stand. And as we said last week, that's where we're going to turn our gaze this week. That's turning our gaze to him and seeing the, the core of the right thinking that we talked about last week that might stop us from heading down the paths of wrong motivations uh, and having the right motivations for the way that we act. And the first, uh, the, this, the heart, this, the foundation, if you like, of this right thinking is this. It's that first and foremost, we are served by Jesus first and foremost served by Jesus all right um, in Mark 10 which hopefully you guys have all got now I'll just get back there in Mark 10 uh, this little uh, few episodes here there's two big truths about Jesus that are on view uh, they're both fundamental the disciples have got an idea about one but are kind of missing the other let's have a little look uh, look at me verse 32 on their way up to Jerusalem sorry they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Now there's some odd details here. It kind of, Did you notice anything kind of stand out to you as a bit odd? Some things are ordinary. You know, they're going up to Jerusalem. Well, that seems fairly ordinary, normal for a Jew going to the capital. Um, Jesus leading the way. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he used to do that. Maybe he used to send people on ahead. Uh, but the next little bit, did you see that? The disciples, the 12, are astonished, while those who followed were afraid. What's going on here? I think the disciples can't understand why Jesus is doing what he's doing at this point. They don't get it. In their minds, you see, Jesus is the chief we he's the king he's god's king who's bringing god's kingdom in we saw that back we would have seen that rather back in chapter 8 of mark where peter confesses yes you are the messiah they know that that, that peter is uh, sorry that jesus is god's king bringing god's kingdom in but Well, he's going back to this place relatively unarmed. And he's going back to the place, Jerusalem, which is the stronghold of those who oppose him, the, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. And he doesn't have a force strong enough to overthrow those authorities, to overthrow the Romans, to bring God's kingdom in as many of the Jews thought that he was going to do in the way that they thought he was going to do it. And so, again, he takes the 12 aside. You get some part of who I am, that I'm the chief, but you don't get it all. He tells them here what's going to happen to him, but if we've got eyes to see it, it's really pointing to something about his identity, an identity statement. Let's look at verse 3, continue on. He takes them aside. Verse 33, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. I'm not going to Jerusalem to overthrow the authorities with force. I'm not going to, to get rid of the Gentiles there. I'm going to be gotten rid of by them. I'm going to give my life that's what I've come to do blank kind of faces there that it that does not compute they can't bring those two things together It seems especially though like James and John um, you know like those kids in the back row at, at school uh, back row of the classroom and they don't know what's going on and then they put their hand up and ask the te- you know the teacher the question that the teacher's just spoken about or or something like that. Well, it's a little bit like that kind of moment for James and John. Um, they're not listening to what Jesus is saying, they're thinking about what they're going to say. And after Jesus has just spoken about how he's going to suffer and die, they come with their crazy request. Verse 35, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Write a blank check. Well, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They said, let us, one, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You see, they know someone is, Jesus is someone special. God's promised king. They know somehow, at some point, Jesus is going to be sitting on a big throne. Psalm two. The psalm of the king. And God will make his enemies, the enemies of his king, a footstool for his feet. And James and John, they want to be there alongside Jesus with their feet up to. Let us be there. They've got part of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the chief, but not the other key part that Jesus is talking about. You see, the second part, Jesus is the chief. The second part is that Jesus is also the chief servant. You see, Jesus isn't isn't just a chief who serves. He's not just like the boss at work, who who knows the workers, who comes alongside them and knows what life is like for them, understands and is humble. He's not just like that, a chief who serves. He's actually also the chief servant. He's the one whom the disciples need to be served by. And for the disciples who see him just as the chief, it's going to be a hard lesson to learn. And come down with me to verse 43, uh, the second sort of sentence there. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Greatness, Jesus says, is not ultimately in being served by many, but in serving many. But this, it's kind of a fairly familiar concept maybe to us, but this would have turned things upside down for that, those first century Jews. Our culture, it's, it's, it's been influenced by Jesus, by these words, such that we've, we value to some degree Humility, humility in leaders as, as a broader culture and especially in the church. But not so back then. Humility was weakness. And who'd want to be that, especially if they were trying to show everyone how powerful they were and make them obey? Further, who is this son of man that Jesus talks about whom even more so we wouldn't expect to come and serve? Well, the Son of Man is a bit of a a strange kind of title. It's a little bit uh, self-referential. Jesus uses it to talk about himself uh, in kind of one way. Maybe it's a little bit like the, the Queen's we, such and such, the royal we. But more than that, it's actually a term that's filled up by Old Testament prophecies as well. Okay? Especially one from Daniel 7. In Daniel 7... One, like a son of man, this, this human being comes on the clouds to the ancient of days, riding on the clouds to the ancient of days, to, to God himself. And he receives authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations, people of all, all countries worship him. And his dominion would never end. It's a bit kind of, mixed. there's, There's this human being who's receiving things that seem to only really rightly be attached to someone who's divine, someone who's God. And so this term has all of these things mixed into it when Jesus refers to the Son of Man, the ruling one, the one who would rule the world. Fitting it is then for Jesus to use it to refer to himself. But then Jesus says, "This one, this one, even the one who will rule the world, even he didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many." Uh, now, when we hear the word uh, ransom, uh, most often these days, it's kind of, you think of kidnappers and people being held captive, and and, but kind of put, putting that kidnapping bit aside, the ransom is the price paid for the freedom of another. What's the price paid? By the chief servant, it's his life given for the freedom of another. And who is the other in this section? Who is this other, the other in this verse? It's not just one person, like maybe a, a husband, pushing his wife out of the way of a bus, uh, saving her but sacrificing himself. Not just one other, and it was it 's not the sacrifice of those Thai Navy seals and cave divers who risked their lives to save all twelve boys and the coach trapped in the underground cave with one of the seals losing their life in the process, not a sacrifice for the few, but a sacrifice, a ransom of the one for the many, just one life, one perfect life given, the life of the one who sat for all eternity at the right hand of the Father, ruling with him, the life of the one by whom and for whom all things were made, in very nature God, as we sung just a moment ago. The life of the one through whom all things hold together and have their being. this life given to death, a humiliating death, the death of criminals, though he'd done nothing wrong. This was the ransom paid. It's given as a as a ransom, not just a, a sort of strange act of love, but a price paid for the freedom of many. Not those for those who deserved freedom and were unfairly held captive, but the price to free those who justly deserved judgment. For unworthy servants who deserved death for rejecting the God that gave us life. So I want to ask you, who are you? Are you one of the many? Are you one who's been rescued, who's been ransomed? Do you see that first and foremost, that you need saving from the deserved consequence of your own rejection of God? Have you honestly admitted that to Jesus and asked for forgiveness? Have you accepted that forgiveness, that freedom of who we are that he brings? Are you first and foremost served by Jesus? Depending on him in your whole being with the foundation of the house that your identity is built on being served by Jesus. This is crucial, you see, because unless you're willing to be served by Jesus, you have no part with him. Those aren't my words. Those are actually Jesus' words. Jesus' words from John chapter 13, just a couple of chapters earlier uh, than what Anna read for us. Uh, I've got some words on the screen. I will come to that in a minute. Um But you see, over in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, Jesus shows the disciples how much they need him to serve them. And he does it by washing the disciples' feet. It was a humiliating task to do this, um, usually reserved uh, for slaves. Uh, And even some rabbis said that even Jews who were slaves, it it was too humiliating for them. But Jesus himself, at this moment, stands up, takes off his outer garment, and gets down on his knees and washes their feet, showing them the way that he will be king, showing them just how much they needed him to serve them. Now, Peter, uh, never one to to keep silent when he's got a thought in his mind, Uh, he he says, no, my Lord, you shall never wash my feet. How could I let you, who were the Lord, do this to me? But Jesus replies with these words, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless you're willing to be served by Jesus and accept all that that means, you have no part with him. Accepting that, it means accepting that on your own you can't serve yourself, that you're helpless without him. But when we do accept this, when we do accept that at our most fundamental, we need to be served by Jesus, then this, he transforms our lives, our desires, our wants. He transforms us. Not only is it a good foundation to build a house on, it's a true and stable foundation that is unshakable. The nature And necessity of Jesus serving us clears out any other foundation that might be in the way, that we might be trying to hold on to, any other cause for boasting. It clears out any kind of self-dependence and pride because in and of itself, the fact that we need to be served by Jesus says you can't do it. It's not in your power. There is no price that you can pay to ransom your life. But on the flip side, when at your core you are fundamentally one served by Jesus, then he brings you into a wonderful freedom and a security of your identity that can never be shaken. Who you are, your worth as a person, your value no longer depends on how good you are, on what you can do on how clever you are, on what relationships you have, on what others think of you. You see, receiving this service of Jesus means that at your very core, at the the foundation of who you are, the grace of God is enthroned. Nothing can come before the grace of God. Nothing can come that might say that you should merit the grace of God. Nothing can come in that should say you should receive it rather than someone else. No, it's only grace. And I think on the flip side in terms of the way that that honors God, there's nothing more central to who we are either is there nothing more central than our identity, the very core of who we are. And so what could be more honouring, more glorifying to, the God, to, to God than having him define and shape our very foundation, our very core? He, he humbles us on this foundation when we're tempted to be proud. He gives us real value when we're tempted to think that we're worth nothing. First and foremost, undeservedly served by Jesus. Is that you? For it's only then, as those who are served by Jesus, that we're brought into the privilege of serving Jesus. I say privilege rather than servitude because although we are servants, servants of the king, servants of the Lord, uh, unworthy servants at that, Jesus doesn't actually treat us as mere servants but much, much more. He brings us in to know his business and he raises us up. Let's uh, flip over to Mark, uh, sorry John chapter 15, flip over to, if we all do it together then we'll all get there at the same time roughly. John chapter 15 should be about I don't know, 100 pages over. John 15 and we'll pick it up at verse 15. I no longer call you servants, verse 15, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends, for everything that I learned from my Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit fruit that will last. As Jesus says here, servants don't know the big plans of their master. The the master isn't answerable to the servant's question of why. You're the servant. He's the master. Just get on with it. But Jesus doesn't treat the eleven disciples or us, for that matter, like that as mere servants. He brings us in to know his plans. He, He raises us up to be our friend, to be his friends. And so, To the disciples and to us through their writings Jesus makes known the big plan of God how it starts and ends with Jesus the world made by his son for his son and how things will finally be brought under Jesus when he returns and in this he doesn't just expect us to blindly kind of follow him like this although he could but he graciously opens himself up. He brings us in, not to merely just see and marvel at his big plan, but to take, even to take part and share in it. It's like he's, God's got this massive Lego world in his garage. And he says to you, come, come, come in and have a look at this. And, You start standing there, you just feel privileged to stand there and marvel and then he doesn't just leave it there. He says, no, no, come in. Let's get in and have a go. Let's build some things. What an awesome boss. Because that's what he is, isn't it? He's the boss, but he brings us in and he raises us up. He tells us his big plan. But you and I might not know what's going to happen tomorrow. We might not know what's going to happen to your health, to to my health, to to your family, to your job, to, to your temporary life here in this world. But we know the big plan of God. We know the God, this God, who sacrificed himself that he might serve and save us. We know Jesus, the Lord, the Son of Man, who's not ashamed to call us, you and me, his friends. Indeed, more than just friends, as we'll see over the next couple of weeks. And we know intimately the God who knows all of the little what's and why's of every little thing that we don't know that's going to happen in our life. He knows them all. And we know that he's in control and a good, loving Father. What more could we want at one level? Except, of course, to be God ourselves, and, well, the first time they tried it didn't go so well, did it? Can I urge you, as well as I urge myself, to be content with what God has given for us to know. But to to, to talk to him, to tell him our worries, to seek him out, to tell him our cares and thoughts, for he really does care, but to trust him and encourage others with why you trust him, with why you really think he is the best boss, because that's what he is. Brag about him. In Scripture, uh, sometimes with the little kids, when we sing that song, you know, Jesus is the boss, um, could be Jesus is the boss of the fish in the sea, or uh, Jesus is the boss, and and we do this. I do this action for boss, but sometimes that can give a bit of a negative kind of connotation. that like kind of the boss, it's like you know the grumpy boss who makes you you know pick up the dog poo or something. Um, but actually, Jesus isn't like that. He's not the boss who makes you do the crummy jobs that no one else wants to do. He's actually the best boss. We make crummy bosses of ourselves and of others, but he's the best boss who serves us first. Serves us in the biggest way possible and then brings us in, not as mere servants, but raises us up as friends. One final brief point here before we finish. And that's... There we go, still served by Jesus. You see, there's a bit of a progression, if you like, on the outline. You can kind of see it there. First and foremost, served by Jesus, only then serving Jesus. But what we've got to know, and I I want to finish with this, what we've got to know is that we never move on from being served by Jesus. That's got to remain the foundation, the foundation of your building, of your house, of who you are, your identity. What happens if you build a house on a on a on a frame on a foundation and then you try and lift the house up and move the house? It's going to fall apart, isn't it? That foundation isn't something that we ever move on from. One mistake that we can have in thinking about as we grow in Christian maturity is we've always got to keep learning new things in order to to grow and be be built up. That's kind of half true. We we do grow and deepen in our knowledge as we understand more and more, but we actually need to keep learning and applying and deepening our knowledge of the fundamental, of the foundation, correcting ourselves, being corrected in things we think we already know, lest those things slide into the background and we lose the bedrock we we'll lose the firm foundation don't despise reapplying what you think you already know but ask God to renew your joy at that secure foundation because that's the answer to the big question of who are you isn't it are you first and foremost are you still Served first and foremost by Jesus. It's only by God's grace that we might keep that first and foremost. Amen.